Welcome into the Power Alley. If you're familiar with the podcast, I'm your host, Pat Melicaro. There's been a lot going on over the course of the month of January as we inch our way towards the 2020 season. Not only are we less than 100 days away from the Bisons beginning the 2020 campaign at Scranton-Wilkesbury on April the 9th, we're also within 100 days of the Bisons opening the 2020 home schedule here at Salem Field on Friday, April the 17th against Rochester. That's a 6.05 start time between the Bisons and the Red Wings. So there's less than 100 days for new Bison manager Ken Huckabee as he continues to get ready for the 2020 season. We'll hear from him coming up very soon in the Power Rally, but this week we talked to Scott Mitchell from TSN who has been covering the Toronto Blue Jays, and we even saw Scott a couple of times in 2019 taking a look at the Bisons and some of the up-and-coming prospects that the Blue Jays would see in September. And a lot of those prospects were pitchers, guys like Anthony Kay, who was newly acquired by the Blue Jays organization right before the trading deadline in July. Also, TJ Zoik, who not only put himself on the radar with his no-hitter against the Red Wings in August, but also for being a former first-round pick and pitching very well prior to that no-hitter, that historic day in Rochester. And one of the big keys for the Toronto Blue Jays this winter was going to be adding to their pitching, adding some veteran arms. They did that in Tanner Roark. They also did that in Hyun Jin Ryu, signed by the Blue Jays very recently. That's where we start our conversation with Scott and talk about some of the big-time pitching acquisitions this winter. Yeah, I mean, I think they could have addressed it, you know, better than anyone could have possibly expected when we, we sat here back in October kind of wondering what they were going to do. I mean, we all knew the rotation was, uh, you know, the, the area of need, the clear area of need, and, and the Blue Jays front office, Ross Atkins, they, they touched on that, you know, right from the get-go of the offseason. The, his exit presser, he, he touched on the fact that they need impact over depth, and you know, I, I think some of us kind of scratched our heads and, and wondered what that would mean. I mean, I thought Zach Wheeler would be a guy that, uh, you know, would look pretty good atop that rotation with a little bit outside. He ended up going for five years and around $120 million. So then when you you heard Hunjin Ryu, you heard he was a possibility. I, I heard I first heard it around the, the GM meetings in, in mid-November. It, it kind of popped up. And you're like, okay, well. You know that that's a guy that that's going to cost a, a lot of money and has a has a pretty good track record of, of performance, but obviously the health question marks were there. So, you know, when they got that deal done, I think that you know was really probably you know the cherry on this offseason for most people because it, it's a, it's a stepping stone and it's, Scott Boris likes to put it it's a layer cake and you know adding Ryu this offseason, adding Tanner Roark, a guy that you know is going to step into a mid rotation role and and hopefully give you 170, 180. 180 even more innings than that I think when you add those two arms um, you know that's a, that's just a massive upgrade on, on what we saw come through here the last couple of years and when you add that stability in and then you add uh, you know a number of guys that, that you have seen um, you know over the last couple of years around them the, the Nate Pearsons the you know potentially Trent Thornton's hopefully Ryan Barak, these guys like that, all of a sudden your rotation starts to come together. So, yeah, I, I think this um, is, is as good as you could have possibly expected the Blue Jays to address the rotation. Whether you agree with the names fully in, in Ryu and in Roark, that's probably a different conversation. Um, but, I mean, this rotation is just massively upgraded, and then this sets them uh, you know, into a good position next winter to potentially go out and, and make another splash and, and really kind of have a rotation that looks playoff caliber heading into 2021. And I know you were out the, at the winter meetings this past year in, in San Diego, and Scott Boris always holds court at some point 
and you know he is <laughs> the name in terms of agents in baseball. What does it mean to for the Blue Jays to go out and sign somebody that is such a high-profile Scott Boris client and, and something that maybe you know doesn't happen in, in the past couple of years, but it happened this year, and to have him you know be a part of um, this conversation of the offseason? Well, it's interesting because there's there's some layers to that relationship, and you know you have to go back a, a number of years. There hasn't been a great relationship between Boris and the Blue Jays front office, whether it's Ross Atkins, whether it's Alex Anthopoulos. Um, you know, I, I think that's a little bit overblown because uh, you know as we've seen, uh, things can change on a dime in that regard. But you know, I, I think it is significant, and I know you know we, we debated this in the Toronto media up here. I mean, first of all, first and foremost, you have to look at the Ryu deal. They added the extra fourth year. No one was else. No one else was going to four years. They paid the most money, eighty million dollars. That that is really how you get the deal done. But Scott Boris is a unique agent in that he does have a lot of power. He does have a lot of clout. He has the ear of a lot of um, you know high profile major league players. And when Scott Boris believes your franchise is is starting to spend money and really is trying to turn that corner and and being one of the teams that that he rags on so so frequently, whether it's the GM meetings or the winter meetings. You know, I get to see this guy hold court twice every offseason, three times this year because we just had him up here for the Ryu press conference. But, you know, this guy has opinions, whether you like him or, or hate him. And, you know, this guy has, uh, you know, ways to grow the game. And they're usually uh, biased towards the agent side and the player side, obviously trying to make more money for his clients. But, you know, I, I think it's significant in the fact that, uh, you know, the Blue Jays uh, are, are really kind of now, um, they're on the radar for agents. And you, you didn't see this the last couple of years when you kind of, you know, trolled the halls of the GM meetings, the winter meetings. Um, the Blue Jays were completely off the radar. And, you know, we kind of all knew that. But when you talk to agents this year, the feeling was completely different right from the get-go. And when you have a, a you know, a big-time client like, like uh, you know, Ryu and you have a Boris guy coming up here and you have a press conference, you know, that, that's a turning point for this rebuild because now it's you don't go and spend $80 million, $20 million a year on, on a left-handed starter who's going to be in his age 33 season if you're not going to do more. So it's going to be really interesting, and I think, you know, around baseball, everyone has kind of looked at the Blue Jays a whole lot differently this offseason. You know, from my perspective here in Buffalo and for, for Bison fans' perspective, you know, I just I wonder what the trickle-down effect will be when you do add a couple of arms that, that should be able to solidify your rotation for the coming year. Does that mean, you know, in you know, looking at the bigger picture, does that allow some of your younger pitchers to develop a little bit more? Because as we saw last season, uh, with the need for, for so many arms to come up, there were so many pitchers before September that saw big league time. And, you know, do they take a step back to, to develop even further or look at a guy like Nate Pearson and, and, you know, what the expectations for him going forward could be and allowing him to develop at the, the AAA level before he makes a big league debut. Yeah, hundred percent. There's a hundred percent of trickle down effect. And, and what you just mentioned there is exactly kind of the system that the Blue Jays want to, you know, kind of develop. They, they don't want their guys. Uh, Anthony Kay is 25 years old. Anthony Kay is a guy who could pitch at the back of a big league rotation, you know, today. He did well in, in September, you know, showed some flashes here and there. The command was, was scattered a little bit from time to time. And that's probably the reason he needs to go back to AAA. But, you know, if the Blue Jays were in a situation a year ago or two years ago, Anthony Kay would probably be in the rotation. But this gives him time to, you know, kind of tweak things. 
um, hone in that command at, at AAA. And what the Blue Jays really like, and especially in the case of Nate Pearson, they they want him on that schedule. They want him in the upper minors, you know, going every fifth day. And, you know, Pearson is a, a completely different story. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into that, uh, you know, at some point here. But, um, you know, they want their guys going every fifth day through rotation. And, you know, as you saw last year, it was kind of scattered for the first few months. And it was just well, what arm is available, um, you know, both at the big league level and in Buffalo. And I really think this year, um, you know, that Buffalo rotation is, is going to be super exciting right from the jump. I think, you know, you're going to have Anthony Kay, you're going to have TJ Zoyce, you're going to have Nate Pearson. Um, you know, that essentially could be the back end of the, uh, the Blue Jays rotation in the major leagues you know, had some of these signings not happen. So I, I think there's going to be a ton of competition. You're going to see uh, this is probably the, the spring training that you're going to see some guys shifted into bullpen roles. I think, you know, Yenzi Diaz, I think, um, you know, Patrick Murphy, Hector, Hector Perez, those three guys are, are kind of on that, uh, you know, towing that line of, of can they get enough innings under their belt to continue to develop as starters? Or do you shift into the bullpen where, you know, probably all three of those guys could be really exciting. And as we look towards spring training, I guess let's go right next to Nate Pearson. And, you know, maybe what are your expectations, as we saw last year, you know, with him really coming back into the role of um, being a starter after his injury uh, the previous year? What do you see in terms of maybe innings-wise or, or what are realistic expectations for him in 2020? Well, I mean, you saw this guy for, what, I think three starts mm -hmm. and, and just, you know, how exciting that guy was. And, and this guy, again, same with Kay, you know, on a, on a kind of a different impact level. But Nate Pearson could get outs in the big leagues right now. We all know that, um, you know, he'd probably be there, mm, I don't know, maybe third, fourth best starter, I, I think. But, um, you know, like you said, there, there's a whole lot of variables that are going to go into this. Um, the first is the fact that innings limit. Um, he's at 101 and two-thirds last year. So, you're projecting probably a jump to 130, 140. And it's going to be interesting to me how the Blue Jays get to that number because last year they 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 reined him in a bit at the start. They had him on the system going two innings, five innings, two innings, five innings. You know, those were hard caps. And talking to him at the Futures game last year, he actually really liked that. It, it wasn't ideal. You know, every starting pitcher wants to go out there and go seven, eight, go deep into ball games every single time out. But what it did was it, it limited his innings in the first half, and then they set him free in the second half. He was going deep into ball games, you know, pitched, um, you know, in the seventh, eighth inning for the first time in his career, threw 100 pitches for the first time in his career. And, you know, it, it worked out better than probably anyone could have imagined because he, you know, held his stuff deep into ball games. He looked terrific. Um, and he finished the season healthy, which is, uh, you know, point A, B, C, and D with this guy. And he, he looked, uh, you know, like the same stud as when he was going two and five innings. So do you do you open him up early in the season on that track and then hope to bring him up to the big leagues in June or July, probably after the Super 2 deadline, and then just let him go in the second half? That's what I would do, which means limiting him, him early in Buffalo and, you know, probably maybe even holding him back a little bit in the cold weather, things like that. Um, but I would limit him the first half. Or the Blue Jays could do what, you know, every other team does is let them pitch and then probably shut them down in August, which, you know, would obviously be disappointing to a number of Blue Jays fans that want to see him pitch up here. But, you know, they're going through this process right now. I've, I've asked Ross Atkins a number of times what their plan is, uh, Gil Kim, director of player development. And, you know, they're not going to tell me exactly what it is, but I, I really think they're debating doing exactly what they did last year, which worked out so well for him. But, 
um, you know, I think uh, you're going to see him for a number of starts down there. And I think, you know, probably June and right around that Super 2 deadline is, is probably when you could, uh, you know, expect and, and start monitoring the news of, of when Pierce is going to arrive in Toronto. Um, what's your take on it? I mean, you, you saw this guy pitch, uh, you know, three times last year and he was dominant every single time out. Yeah, I think that that was the most impressive thing to me was for for somebody as young as he was, and his first start in AAA was on his birthday. Um, he was always in command of himself. We, we talk, you know, a lot about anecdotally of the game getting too fast for guys and speeding up as you go up to the higher levels, and you know, having to react to better better batters at the plate, uh, bigger situations. And I know it was only three starts. But it didn't seem like he was rattled, and the thing I was looking for was the velocity. The velocity was almost consistent, and I think to me, well, we didn't see you know 101, 102, high 100s speed-wise. He was consistent, and for a young kid, to me, that was the most impressive part, and I think something that um, the the Blue Jays front office uh, probably picked up on from the scouting reports of you know just as a kid not being rattled by situations. Yeah, I think just talking to a few people around the game, that was the thing with, with Nate is, you know, he, he looked like a terrific prospect coming into the 2019 season, but seeing him, like you say, hold his stuff deep into games, especially in that second half of the season when, when you got to see him for a few starts up there, um, you know, I, I think that is exactly what kind of sent his prospect stock from, okay, you know, this guy throws gas and, you know, has a pretty good slider and, you know, he's obviously huge. Um, from that to, oh, man, this guy can pitch, and he's going to be able to pitch well into the seventh and eighth inning. And I think another thing that uh, going forward into 2020, and this is not a knock on Bobby Meacham because I thought he managed really well to young players and to older players as well, but with Ken Huckabee coming in as the manager of the Bison this season, a former catcher, somebody who has worked you know, with catchers throughout the organization, I think that can be a valuable um, piece for the pitching staff to rely on to some extent and to help both the, the, the pitchers and the catchers kind of work together and and develop and grow. And I think that's one thing that Ken really brings to the table and someone like Nate Pearson or, or TJ Zoic, Anthony Kay can really learn from as well. Um, just one of those, not side effects, but one of those po- positives, I think, of bringing in someone like Ken Huckabee. Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with that. I thought Hawk was a great hire. And, you know, like you said, he, he will give pitchers a different perspective. And with some of the catching coming through the system with Alejandro Kirk and, and Gabby Moreno and, and probably Riley Adams there this year, you know, it'll probably help in that regard with them as well. Now, one player I want to ask you about also specifically is Rowdy Telez. With, with the addition of Travis Shaw this past offseason, or the more, most recently, you know, where does that leave Rowdy in your eyes in, in you know, now that he's been in the big leagues a little bit the last couple of years, uh, where does that kind of leave him, and what does he need to do maybe in your eyes going forward as we enter spring training? Well, I mean, to answer the second question, he he just needs to have a better approach at the plate. I mean, when you're you're rocking an on-base percentage, um, you know, under, under 300, uh, you know, in, in today's game, it's really tough. And, you know, it, when you look at what Rowdy does well, there's obvious power there. And I, I think, what it was it, 21 home runs last year? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, you know, the power goes to waste if you're not getting on base enough as a, as a big, you know, corner bat type. Um, you, you have to just – you have to be able to figure out how to take more walks. And, and Rowdy just didn't do that last year. And, 
you know, he swung through a ton of high fastballs. And when you swing through high fastballs, then you become, uh, you know, vulnerable to that, uh, that breaking pitch off your foot. So, um, you know, it was a, it was an interesting year for him. I, I think he had a, a number of, of hot streaks that people said, man, the, you know, we might have something here and, you know, we might be able to, to find a, a role for this guy in the rebuild. And then there were, um, some cratered streaks that you know, were like, man, this guy probably needs a, a stint back in, in Buffalo for a while to, to get his head right. So, uh, you know, at this point, it, it's interesting because we're sitting here in, in mid-January and, uh, you know, I still think at this point there is a role for him on this team. Um, you know, Travis Shaw hits left-handed, uh, can't hit left-handed pitching. Uh, Rowdy Telez hits left-handed. So, I mean, there's no easy platoon situation there, but there is a DH spot and right now, you know, I think, um, you know, one of those outfielders, Teoscar Hernandez, might pick up some of the bats there. But you have to wonder if they're going to be able to upgrade center field at this point. And if they don't, and Teoscar Hernandez is still out there, Derek Fisher has a role out there somehow in spring training. Um, you know, maybe there's a way that Rowdy comes in, in in spring training and rakes and is able to, to lock down, uh, you know, a share of that DH job. I, I think that's his best bet at this point. But, you know, we all know how baseball goes. Uh, in, in today's age and, and there's not a lot of room for a guy who you know can play um, you know a, a below average first base and, and really not do much of anything of anything else so you know he's, he's behind the eight ball in terms of a roster spot obviously the the 26th man um, and uh, you know one more position player on every single bench may help him but uh, you know he's behind the eight ball at this point it, it's going to be interesting to see what else the Blue Jays add whether it's minor league deals some some veteran depth in terms of uh, spring training competition but you know he, he needs to come into spring training and hit and, and show um, you know just a better approach at the plate and, and show Charlie Montoyo that you know there's another step in him and you know at the age of 24 25 almost um, you know I, I wouldn't close the book on him but uh, it's going to be an important spring and, and definitely an important year and We'll see. He's going to have to earn all of his at bats, and and you know I, I know you saw him last year when he came down for a stretch and and really tore the cover off the baseball, and you know that that seemed to propel him into a, a little bit of a better place late in the season. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of mindset he's in, uh, you know, coming into spring in February. Yeah, it seemed like all, all those issues that you mentioned with his swing kind of went away here at AAA at least, and maybe it is part partly because of. The, the difference in talent level, but working with Corey Hart and, and uh, what he did with not only Rowdy Telez, but Lourdes Gurriel Jr. in his time uh, as he transitioned to an outfielder and, and, you know, moving to a new position, so to speak, and also keeping your offense at the plate. Um, guys tend to gravitate towards Corey and, and kind of help them out a little bit. So uh, we'll see if maybe that that's something that, that can help Rowdy and, and other young players too, and as we mentioned, you know, potentials for the, this coaching staff here in Buffalo and what Corey has meant to some of these young guys. Yeah, I mean, Corey is actually, uh, you know, I actually wouldn't be surprised to see Corey added to the Major League staff at, at some point in the near future. He's uh, He's got a very good reputation in terms of working with hitters and, and being, uh, you know, kind of a thinker, a thinking man's hitting coach that can use video and, and things, and, and that's obviously a, uh, you know, a huge deal in today's game. And, and what the Blue Jays did last year, and, and Corey and Guillermo uh, uh, Martinez, the, the Blue Jays' major league hitting coach, is they, they just kind of turned him a little bit more upright. They thought Rowdy was hunching down too much. Um, that would make him vulnerable to the to the high fastball, and it obviously did. And they just kind of stood him up straighter a little bit. And you know, he had that stretch in in Buffalo down there where uh, you know he looked 
he looked uh, he looked the part, and you know the, the, when he when Rowdy's going well, he he, he gets really really hot, and, and that gives a lot of people hope. But uh, you know it, it, it's going to be interesting. He, he's behind the eight ball in terms of body type and you know positioning and everything that you know teams are looking for in versatility in today's game. And he, he simply just needs to walk more to be able to get that power to play. And, you know, if that happens, uh, the Blue Jays might have some on their hands. But, you know, at this point, they've reached the point of, of depth, um, you know, organization-wide that they're not going to hand anything to him. So he really needs to earn every at-bat he gets this spring. Well, Scott, we've gone 19 minutes, and I have not brought up the big three prospect-wise <laughs> uh, so far. So let's go there uh, for a moment before I, before I let you go. Um, you know, what, what are the next steps is all three, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Kevin Biggio, and Bo Bichette all came up at different times last year with varying degrees of success. Um, maybe w- what the expectations for someone like Bo Bichette are going into 2020 and what, what spring could mean? Well, I mean, if it depends whose expectations you're talking about. I mean, outwardly, <laughs> they're, you know, just absolutely sky high. I mean, every everyone thinks this guy is going to be an absolute superstar and you know, I'm not going to say he's not, but, uh, you know, I, I think you do have to, you know, pull the reins back a little bit and, you know, remember a guy like Brett Lowry, remember some of these prospects that, you know, do go through, um, you know, maybe a little bit of growing pains after their initial kind of uh, splash onto the scene. And, you know, Bo was just so terrific last year. And, you know, the fact that he came up and, and tore the cover off the baseball, you know, looked the part defensively as well. And, you know, you, you know this kid, and he, he's got this uh, he's got this swagger, he's got this juice to him that you know really just resonates in a clubhouse. And you know, it borders on cocky. I, I love cocky personally. I was a big Allen Iverson fan, big Barry Bonds fan when I was a kid. So you know, I never used the term cocky in a negative sense. But you know, when I talk to Bo, he, he's got that swagger, and that kind of resonates and, and kind of um, you know uh, spreads through the clubhouse. And you could really feel that last August when he arrived. So. I mean, the expectations for this guy are just massive. I, I do think there is going to be an adjustment period. The the swing is a little bit unique. Um, you know, he, he can get exposed in, in certain areas. And I think major league pitchers after, you know, I guess six weeks, uh, eight weeks through the league last year are, are probably going to catch on a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think Bo is, is such a smart, terrific hitter that, that he'll be able to uh, readjust to that as well. And, you know, I think all three of those kids are, are going to go through that same thing where pitchers are gonna, now going to look at, uh, you know, the body of work and say, OK, this guy does that well, this guy does that well. Um, you know, and that's going to make it tougher. But I think the, the thing that uh, you heard most about all three of these guys coming up is, is obviously the bloodlines and, and things like that make it easier, but just how smart they are and how much aptitude there is in terms of going into the cage, going into the video room, um, you know, going into an at-bat and, and adjusting and, and figuring out how to make things work. And Kevin Biggio is a guy that, um, you know, he, he raked when you saw him down there. And, and I, I think people were wondering how real that was. And then he came up and, and pretty much did it in the big leagues as well, not to the same level, obviously, but, what that guy brought, um, you know, to each and every at bat with his, um, you know, eye, which is probably just one of the top five, one of the top five approaches in baseball at this point, which is amazing to say about a kid who's about to turn 25. So, um, you know, I, I think everyone is a little bit light on him offensively, and I think the expectations for him have really kind of grown. And then we've got the rumblings of this center field experiment, which. 
Um, you know, I'm not going to go into too much, but, uh, you know, the Blue Jays have tossed around the idea of using him in center field to fill that massive hole out there. And, you know, while it may seem a little bit odd on the, on the surface, when you consider the fact he was one of the fastest players on their team and just how smart this kid is, um, you, you never know. That might be one of those things that just happens to work. And if that works and he looks like, uh, you know, even an average center fielder defensively, um, you know, that could be a real uh, coup for the organization in terms of turning a guy who is, um, uh, I believe, a fourth or fifth round pick into an, an underspot. Get this, though. Can, if you can believe this, when when Kevin Biggio was drafted, he didn't even get his draft slot. He took an undervalued deal to sign with the Blue Jays, and, and now look what he's turned into. So, um, you know, just the expectations are, are, are massive for these three guys. And, you know, while I think they've uh, kind of settled down a little bit for Vladdy after his season, I, I really think he's the, the guy that, uh, you know, people are going to forget about, talk about Bo all, all spring, and, and Vladdy's going to come in and, and really – probably show why he was the number one prospect in baseball but uh you know it's just going to be so interesting to track all three of those guys in their full years because i don't think you can get a sense of, of what a major league player is especially you know a guy who's 20 years old um you know in a in a partial season i, I think uh, a full spring training what these guys do from start to finish is, is going to be super interesting to track and you know i think the expectations up here um from the public are huge and i think internally as well i think uh you know, a lot of a lot of the improvements that are going to come from 67 wins aren't going to be Hunjin Ryu, Tanner Roark. They're going to be all three, and you could probably add Lourdes Gurriel into that uh, mix as well. It's going to be those four guys improving, and, and just how much they improve from you know one and a half, two win seasons. Are they all ready to be four win players? Um, you know, I wouldn't bet on it, but I also wouldn't bet against it either. How unique was the situation where Kevin Biggio in the clubhouse? Um, you know, reading certain uh, reports and, and conversations throughout the year, hearing certain things that, you know, he tended to be a, a leader in the clubhouse last year, and you're around the team all the time. You know, w- what was his role off the field like in, in being a young kid just into his par- part of a first season and how that kind of developed? Well, yeah, I think that's exactly what he was, and, I met Kevin first at the at the Arizona Fall League a couple of years ago, and that that was the one thing that impressed me the most uh, right away was just his maturity. And he gets lumped in with Laddie and, and Bo, but we do have to remember he is going to turn 25 in April, so he's a little bit older, a little bit more mature. Obviously, went to Notre Dame. He has a little bit of uh, a little bit of life experience behind him. Obviously, the Hall of Fame father, you know, kind of just uh, you know helps that maturity along as well in terms of. Uh, being in a clubhouse but um that was noticed right away and and the one comp that i got um from blue jays people behind the scenes is this is our dustin pedroia this is our guy that's going to be kind of the glue guy the the little bit of rah rah when we need it the the guy who is essentially the conscience of that clubhouse and i saw that from day one from the moment he arrived in that clubhouse he looked like a guy who felt like he belonged and had no problem um talking to his teammates like he belonged and i'll share one story with you i'll, I'll leave a couple of the names out but one one story that was shared pretty early on with me um you know behind the scenes last last spring or summer probably probably in in june or july um i guess i guess someone one of the players wasn't too keen on doing some extra work in the cage and um you know i guess they were they were talking around the cage and i guess Kevin piped up and he said uh he said hey 
we're all two weeks from being back in the minor league, so you should probably do that extra cage work. And this is a guy who is, is talking to a player of a similar age to him, and he is talking like a leader. And it wasn't putting the guy down. It was that leadership ability to say, no, we need to work. We need to do this. You need to do this for yourself. You need to do this for the team. And um, when I heard that story, I was like, man, you know what? That's the type of guy that, you know, you – you build winning teams around and you could talk about baseball skills all you want, but you need a couple of those guys in the clubhouse. I, I, I'm not a believer that you need a full team of those guys, but man, just having one Calvin Biggio like that, a guy who's going to keep people accountable and also be a pretty good baseball player at the same time. I mean, that's just, it's, he's, he's, he's one of the most impressive individuals as a youngster that I've ever met in a clubhouse. Our thanks to Scott for joining us here in the Power Alley. Don't forget, coming up very soon, we'll hear from New Bison manager Ken Huckabee, get his thoughts on the 2020 season coming up, and also what excites him heading into the year and taking a look at what has led him here to becoming the 21st manager of the Buffalo Bisons in the modern era. And we'll have that for you coming up in the next few weeks. That'll do it for this episode of the Power Alley. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pat Melicaro. We'll talk to you next time out.